Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, We're taking a little bit of a break on this Friday edition of the show. We've talked about political news all week. And, and during our conversation uh, today, I no doubt uh, think politics are going to play a role in our discussion. But I am really delighted to welcome uh, Manola Dargis, the co-chief film critic of the New York Times, your five-time Pulitzer Prize finalist, uh, Manola. Um, you've been celebrated for a very long time in your role. You were at the LA Times before the New York Times. And way before that, I think you started writing reviews for uh, uh, publications like The Village Voice, right? That's exactly right. That's where I got oh, my start. It's, it's great <laughs> to have you here. Well, I'm really pleased to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, you, there was a specific essay that you wrote that caught my attention that I want to talk about in a minute. But but what I'd really like to do first is go back to your life growing up in New York City. You grew up in the East Village. And so you had uh, several movie theaters around you when you were young that were showing what we call art pictures, Right. Mm-hmm. Um, both, but actually I had two theaters. One was uh, St. Mark's Cinema, which uh, was a second run house. And they, sh- they, they did show some, you know, they did show Hollywood movies. I saw the Poseidon adventure there, <laughs> but um, I also saw movies that I didn't understand, like drive. He said, and five easy pieces. Um, and um, this was the uh, era before helicopter parents. So my parents would just give me a old battered dollar and I would just trot off by myself to see the movies. And the other movie theater that was uh, really close to home was theater 80, which was a um, revival house. And they would show like Fred Astaire and Ginger Roger movies, Thin Man movies. Um, it was truly terrible setup. It was rear projections so the quality was really terrible, but you know, for parents uh, in the East Village and there weren't a lot of playgrounds around, it was perfect. You just send your kid off and, uh, you know, good luck at the movie theater. <laughs> so I went every week. Well, I thought about that because I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. And uh, as a teenager, I went to the uh, movie theaters that were showing avant-garde uh, art pictures. So uh, there was the 400 uh, theater was a, a big one back then. Um, and there were others, the Coronet. And and it was there that as a teenager, I learned the French New Wave and the mm. Italian New Wave, um, British uh, New Wave pictures. And it sort of began my excitement about what film could be, not just what was being sort of thrust at me by the big Hollywood studios. And that, I think, has had a big impact on the way I think about movies today. And it's one of the reasons that I really was excited to talk to you, uh, because you have, in your career, really championed and found some of the great pictures that 
are not the ones that are, you know, in the top of the box office every week. You too know what it means to look for independent pictures that are valuable, even if they're not big box office movies. Fair enough? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I think that, um, you know, my parents did not have money. They were growing up kind of, you know, I grew up in a kind of slightly bohemian, uh, but basically not very, you know, not a lot of money. Um, I didn't have babysitters. My parents would take me to the movies and they took me to what they as young people living in New York City in the 60s were seeing, you know, so I I knew who Truffaut was, you know, when I was a kid. And, you know, it sounds ridiculous, but my favorite movie when I was eight years old was Jules and Jim, which yeah. is preposterous <laughs> at an eight-year-old. I mean, it's just like, it's laughable. But it's really uh, as a consequence of the fact that my parents couldn't afford a babysitter. So they would just haul me off to the theater and, you know, I would sit in someone's lap and just watch the movies. And I think it's, my dad was, um, a museum guard at the Museum of um, Modern Art, for instance, that was another kind of important thing for me. So he would take my mother and me into the museum when I was very young. So I knew who Picasso was at a young age. I just think that if you introduce children at a young age to a variety of different kinds of artworks, then, you know, they'll be open to it. So I was very open to abstract art. I was very open to so-called art cinema. And so for me, you know, the way I feel about it is a movie is a movie is a movie, whether it's made by an avant-garde filmmaker or, you know, Jerry Bruckheimer, the produ big producer, you know. Um, and so I'm going to try to go to everything and see everything. Um, and I think so much of movie going is about habit. And I think one of the things that we can say about Americans is they've kind of fallen out of the habit of the going to the movies on a weekly basis. When I was a kid, my parents went to the movies every week. And I think that that was very common. Um, and we just have different kinds of entertainments, you know, to take up our time. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm glad you um, said all that because um, some of the pictures I'm looking forward to talking to you about are not the movies that necessarily come to the mind of our listeners when they're thinking about what they'd like to see, what they hope they could see. But but here's the way I want to start. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, before we started the show, I asked you, I couldn't find the article again, <clears throat> but you, in one of the pieces you wrote, you referred to a quote of Jean-Luc Godard uh, talking about Hollywood movies. And I don't know if you remember the exact quote or not, I sort of can paraphrase it, but do you do you remember essentially what he said? Well, there it was basically uh, a quote from a Vin Benders movie uh, in which he um, I, and again, I'm going to be paraphrasing it as well. But effectively, Godard was saying that at some point, basically, the studios just want to make one big movie. Um, and it was a kind of comment about mon the monoculture to a certain de degree. Um, but it was also about that I say that there's an, and Godard doesn't really go into it. It's more, he's making a very uh, witty comment um, in this vendor's documentary. Um, but it's really about, you know, this the old studios, the studios that made the movies in the, you know, when we think about classical Hollywood cinema, they were really um, interested in both uh, product differentiation and sameness. So you had genres, Westerns, and but then you also had different kinds of stars. So if you didn't like Gary Cooper, well, maybe you liked Jimmy Stewart. And so you would have a variety of people to look at. Now, of course, within the bounds of that variety, 
you know, it, it, it wasn't like you were looking at anyone except white people for the most part, you know, so when we talk about variety, we must have very heavy quotations, but as the, for all sorts of reasons that aren't, I think, particularly interesting to a lot of people, what has happened is that the studios don't make as many movies at all, and they mm -hmm. make more of the same kind of movies. Yeah. Um, and there's less of that kind of product differentiation. And in order to really kind of find different kinds of movies, you really need to go beyond the obvious. You know, you if I, you know, I, I've really enjoyed some Marvel movies, but if you want something other than Marvel or a superhero movie, you need to kind of really poke around and look for things. It's like you can look at popular culture and realize that there's a lot of interesting things within within that, um, you know, framework. Yeah. Um, well, and, and basically the Godard quote, I, I thought about uh, about it when I was reading the essay that I mentioned, what was what led me to really look forward to talking to you because um, it, it's along that line. You're, you, you wrote an essay a couple of weeks ago for the Times in which you said, for the first time ever, I'm optimistic about women in the movie world. It's not just the volume and range of films centered on female characters. It's also a shift in consciousness that has made feminist concerns mainstream. And that's certainly a change from the Godard, whether he was joking or just being biting, notion that Hollywood makes one big movie and that's all there is to it. Yes. Talk about what has happened and that you wrote about in that essay. How are women suddenly becoming more important in pictures? Well, I think it's actually not sudden. I think it's been a really, really slow and painful process. I mean, I think it's, you know, I, I'm sorry, I always feel like I'm putting on my little historian's cap uh, when I talk about this, but I think it's incredibly important to understand that women helped invent cinema, you know, uh, and it's extremely important to understand that there were people like Alice Guy Blachet, who was a French filmmaker. Uh, she, uh, there's some dispute about the, the time that she made her first movie, but needless to say, but at the end of the 19th century, she was making movies. And when she moves to the United States at the beginning of the 20th century, she soon actually founds a studio. You had women directing, producing, and starring in movies in the early years of the 20th century. And when you look at trade publications, you know, something like Variety for, you know, the 1910s and the teens, you will see ads for women who had different production companies. And it wasn't weird. They were, they were definitely in the minority, but they definitely were there and making movies and making money. Um, and it was kind of like the best analogy that I could think of right now is, you know, it was kind of the Wild West. This is before the movie industry had really become the enormous big business that it becomes later on. It's before the rise of the centralized factory system. And what happens is as the movies become more lucrative, as Wall Street becomes involved, it becomes more rationalized and it becomes more difficult for women to be in the business. So that by the 30s, there's really just one woman who's actually uh, directing in Hollywood, Dorothy Arzner. And for the next 30 some odd years, there are no women basically working for the big studios. There are some women working around the edges. For instance, the actress Ida Lupino mm. starts making movies, um, but she's making uh, her own independent movies and, and releasing through small studios. 
And what changes really is second wave feminism. You know, it's just uh, you have a kind of a larger change in consciousness about women. Um, and by the late 1960s and into the early 1970s, women start to be able to direct. Now, there were always women working within the old studio system. I want to be very clear. They were often working in very specific roles um, and they were often not they did not have power positions. There were a few women who did produce, but and there were a few women who became executives. But again, they were very unusual. But certainly women were working in costume. You know, they were working in hair. They were working editing. And a lot of women wrote movies. Well, but but in terms of power positions, that that really was not the case for decades upon decades. Well, but here's one of the things that I think is interesting about that. You cited Jules and Jim as uh, one of your favorite pictures, Truffaut. And well, when I was when I was eight years old. OK, but <laughs> fine. But fine. But so Truffaut, one of the leaders of the French New Wave, obviously, he cites a, an American movie that really had an enormous influence, he thought, on the French New Wave, a picture called The Little Fugitive, which I've never seen. Mm -hmm. One of the three uh, people behind that picture was a woman, Ruth yes. Orkin. Yes. <laughs> and and Truffaut basically says the French New Wave would have never come into being if it hadn't been uh, for that uh, movie. But Ruth Orkin is lost in cinema history, as far as I know. <laughs> right. And I think what's important is that when we when we talk about the American when we talk about American cinema, we have to understand that there are many streams within the American cinema. The dominant stream is, you know, Hollywood uh, and it that they it Hollywood, whatever that is and however you define it, has always been the, the predominant player, the dominant force. But that doesn't mean that there haven't been other people making movies. And certainly there were women making, uh, you know, nonfiction films, avant-garde cinemas, Maya Darren, very important avant-garde filmmaker. And there have always been women working in movies, maybe not necessarily, you know, and even making their own movies, but not necessarily working within the, the big studios. But again, American cinema is bigger than Hollywood. It's just that Hollywood has tended historically to dominate American cinema. Okay, so let's go to your essay on uh, your optimism about women in pictures. Cite some of the reasons why you think things are better for women right now. What happened in 2022 and before that that's given you optimism? Well, a lot of things happened. I mean, what I tried to do in the in the piece is explain that, you know, I thought that when Catherine Bigelow won her Oscars for her movie, The Hurt Locker. Um, she, you know, she won two Oscars. She won Best Director and Best Picture. And she became the first woman to win Best Director. And I thought, OK, everything's going to change. And then it didn't seem to change. And I was very disappointed. But what I didn't realize at the time was that change was already happening. <laughs> you know, that I... I that that her winning was part of a larger shift in consciousness. And I think that, you know, when people who and there are many, many, many people, researchers included, who study the, the issue of women in film. And one of the things that they talk about is just like our mental model of what a director is. And when you think like if you immediately think to yourself, what is a movie director? Odds are oftentimes you'll think of a guy, usually a white guy, and he's wearing a cap, you know, you know, maybe he's squinting and maybe he's putting his fingers up to like create a little frame, you know, I mean, it's just the classic kind of cliche, but with that cliche comes all sorts of ideas about who can actually 
uh, you know, direct a movie or not. And there's all sorts of analyses about like just the language in, you know, which is very gendered about it and, you know, the general, but of course there are women generals, but, you know, we don't think about that. Um, so a lot of things actually did happen. And uh, Catherine, you know, starting with 2009 when she wins her Oscars. Um, but then, you know, that year, I just want to point out there had been a study. There's a woman, um, Martha Lazan, who does an annual study looking at women and she pointed out that in 2009, just 7% of the directors who had made the top 250 box office movies domestic were women. So again, out of 250 movies, only 7% had been directed by women. Now cut to last year, and now the number is at 18%. Yeah. Now, again, I know there are people who are going to look at that and say, well, that's still depressing. Only 18% of the movies top movies were directed by women. But I, for whatever reason, I'm looking at the glass as brimming half full. Like it's not just half full, it is brimming over. And I see huge progress between 7% and 18%. And a lot of things have happened. Women have made a nuisance of themselves in the best possible way. Women have been complaining and fighting and agitating. Women are supporting other women. They're producing. They're realizing, yes, women can make movies. They've always made movies. Let's give them a shot. Uh, some men who have power have been guilted into having done this and maybe actually <laughs> even wanting to do this. Um, there have been really important figures. One of the most important figures, I would say, is Ava DuVernay, who is a she is beyond just a filmmaker. She is uh, beyond it. There's not even a word that I can quite describe what DuVernay has been doing. Um, she one best director at Sundance um, in the last 10 years. And she didn't just take that win and run with it. She ran faster than any human being possible. She's like the flash as far as I'm concerned. And what she basically did is that she didn't just take you know, the, this kind of great opportunity, you know, this great thing that she deserved for winning best director at Sundance. She basically built an entire infrastructure for herself. She bought a building. She started expanding. She started producing and supporting other people. She distributes. So every facet of the movie industry, she decided she was going to have a part of, and she is on her show, you know, um, she, uh, I'm sorry, I'm just completely spacing on in the name. It's sugar. I know is in the name queen sugar. She hired yeah. only women directors. That yeah. is mind blowing season after season, episode after episode, she hired women. And well, we, that should remind, we should remind listeners that among other pictures, she directed Selma. Of course, of course. Um, and, 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 but, but even in some ways, even more interesting she was brought in to do A Wrinkle in Time, which was like a hundred, you point out in your essay, a hundred million dollar budget movie, the first movie of that expense directed by a black woman. So she's gone from making pictures that have a very specific narrow audience to being able to work on the biggest stages possible. Absolutely. And, you know, her first movie, she had been a publicist, a film publicist. And actually, that's how I knew her from the very beginning. It was just so wild. But her first movie, I believe she she self-financed it. It was a documentary and documentary is really important. I'll, I'll return that to that in a second. But her first movie, she financed for, I think, like $10,000. So she just, you know, she started small and then she continued to build and build and build. And she really understood that, you know, 
if you wait for people to give you something in the movie industry, you're going to be waiting probably the rest of your life. If you actually want to do something, you actually need to start doing things yourself. And I think with uh, DuVernay, she had an in as a publicist. She was able to save some money. She uses that money she saves and she's able to capitalize her own projects and she keeps going and she's talented. You know, I mean, it's not going to work if you're not talented, but she's, you know, supremely talented, but she has a vision. You know, she has a vision for what she needs and she's helping other people who will then also help other people. And she creates this system. So so let me uh, go to some of the pictures that you use as evidence of women uh, making an impact uh, in the last year. Uh, and they're popular pictures in some cases. Michelle Yeoh in Everything Everywhere All at Once, Kiki Palmer uh, in Nope, a picture which I, I told you ahead of time, I had to see twice before I realized how much I loved it. <laughs> and sometimes the best movies you need to revisit. What can I say? That is a very, very rich movie. And also, you know, the Academy done it wrong, man. That is so wrong that it has got shut out. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, you mentioned Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, The Woman King, even Olivia Wilde's picture, Don't Worry Darling, which, oh my gosh, was completely <laughs> overwhelmed. The Whatever she was doing with that picture never got across because what was overwhelming about it was all of the controversy about her, about Harry Styles, about some of the things she said in her promotional tour of the picture. So, but those are examples of, of big popular pictures, big box office potentially movies where women made a big impact in this last year. Yeah. yeah. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I would say something even like Candyman, the, the, which is, yeah. a, you know, very uh, kind of cultish horror movie that was rebooted and they hired a black woman to direct it, Nia DaCosta, and it was a hit. And I just think like if you just keep, you know, for so long, women have just been seen as unicorns. And so every time something would come along, they'd be like, oh, yes, but that's just an exception. If you have so many women who are succeeding and not succeeding with small, you know, I want the small movies and I want the big movies. I want women fundamentally to be able to succeed and fail as much as men. Um, let's do this. Uh, I'd like to uh, take a break uh, br briefly, excuse me, and then we'll keep talking. Um, I want to specifically talk about one picture that uh, really makes the case for how powerful women can be in making motion pictures. And we'll do that in more uh, after we pause for these messages. You okay? Yep. Okay. Welcome back to Political Rewind. We're uh, taking a break from talking about daily politics to talk with Manola Dargis, Dargis the uh, co-chief film critic for the New York Times. I, I have to say, Manola, I'm just... You know, we did a, a, a show with your partner, AO, Tony Scott, a while back, and it's really a, a, a treat for me to get to hear from you directly. And I, and I think our listeners really appreciate your talking to us here on the Georgia NPR Network. So thank you for that. Thanks for I having me. Talk, <laughs> I want to talk, if I may, about one movie directed by a woman, not only starring a woman, but focused with laser-like attention on one woman. And that's the French picture happening. Mm. Tell us about, which by the way, obviously is an important political picture too. 
about a young woman who is studying for university, a smart young woman, dedicated, focused, who finds herself pregnant at a time in France when abortion is criminally illegal. And it's a powerful, powerful movie. Talk to us a little bit about that picture. Um, this is a really, I, I urge people to seek it out. The, this is based on a memoir by the, um, she just won the Nobel, uh, Annie Arnaud, the French writer Annie Arnaud, who I have just discovered, Happening was the first uh, of her books, and it's certainly not the last that I've read. Um, and the movie takes place in the early 60s when uh, abortion is uh, criminalized in France. And it's about a young woman named Annie, who she's 23, she's studying in uh, school, she gets pregnant and she cannot get an abortion and she she wants to live her life she wants to continue her studies she wants to have a life on her own terms and she it certainly there's no sense that she doesn't want children at one point but even if she didn't she just doesn't want to have a you know doesn't want to have a baby now and it is basically kind of a i i see this as a kind of female odyssey you know that she undergoes um in her attempts she tries every single attempt uh every single way she goes to doctors including doctors who actually give her medication to ensure that she uh does not miscarry she doesn't know that um and it's a very intimate movie. You're with the character very intimately with her as she's kind of anguished about it, talking to her friends. She's very frightened to talk to her friends. So there's a lot of coded language and she's really uh, hesitant. And her you're just following this kind of very, very anguished uh, journey until she finally is able, she goes to a, a you know back alley abortionist um, and she finally is able to um, kind of realize what she needs to do. Um, and it's very difficult. It's very unflinching. Um, it's very intimate. Um, and it's very unafraid to take on the subject in a way that a, a lot of American movies have either avoided the topic of abortion, um, somewhat understandably so, um, or have just kind of, uh, I mean, you know, some movies don't even say the word. Um, uh, so like knocked up that comedy, so-called comedy. Um, so I just think it's a really powerful movie and I really uh, urge people to to watch it. It's now streaming. I don't know which streamer, but you can, I always recommend the, uh, oh, it is. Okay. But it's probably on a couple other things. Um, you can just go to justwatch.com. That's one of the best places to find out uh, where, what is streaming and where. Well, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about, first of all, it was released uh, right around the time that uh, the Supreme Court uh, was going to uh, uh, release its uh, decision overturning Roe. And, and, and I think what that picture does, Manola, uh, because it focuses so intimately on Annie and her desperate journey, um, it humanizes, you know, we, on this show, we get so caught up in the polemics around abortion, around the, you know, the, the, the language, the rhetoric that sort of washes over us because we've heard it so often. But here's what the power of a movie can be. We really understand the consequences as we watch Annie struggle. It becomes almost a suspense picture. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, um, I think so. And I think one of the moments, because this relates back to your comment, 
not just about movie women making movies and starring in movies in, in, in ways that are important, but what they will do in terms of their messaging. There's a line in that picture when Aunt Annie is failing in school for the first time because she can't focus. And um, she finally goes back to her professor. She's about to take the exams to get into university. And she goes to the teacher who has always uh, thought she was a wonderful student and now is completely disappointed in her. And, and she says, please let me see the lecture notes. I want to get back. He says, you're too far behind. And she said, you don't understand. Uh, I have to do this. And he says, have you been ill? And her line is, yes, the illness that only women get and that turns them into housewives. That's a great line. Well, it's a brutal line. Um, yeah. know, but, I, but I think it really, for a woman in the early 1960s, you know, um, and, it, and this is in France again, but I don't, you know, I think it would apply to women across many different cultures and in many different countries. You know, her choices are very narrow. You know, if she has, uh, she either gets married and has children or she doesn't. And I think, you know, that this is a really expresses something also about Annie Arnaud, who really writes about the difficulties of about wanting to write, you know, being an uh, being someone who wants to write, but is also raising. She had two sons and she was married and, you know, her trying to find me, she used to write quietly and slyly um, and about the struggle to be the person that she herself wants to be rather than the person that her parents want, that her husband wants and all of that. And I think, you know, I think it's really important when we're talking about um, women making inroads into the movie industry that that really fundamentally for me, this sounds kind of selfish, but it's also about watching stories about women. You know, it's, it, I, you know, there was a point like more than 10 years ago where I just realized I was just seeing so many stories about men and it was very, it's like, Oh, a, a boy's a, a boy learns, a boy discovers, a boy <laughs> finds out a man does this. He goes out, he conquers the world, you know? And I actually did this little thing about like, women waiting, you know, there's always like in certain movies, like the man is going to go off and have his adventure and the woman just waves from the porch, you know, <laughs> and, and we'll see her again in 90 minutes when he comes back heroically and kisses her. And then the credits, the end, you know, I just, and as a movie lover, I want a diversity of experiences to watch. You know, I want to see other, I want to see something that actually, you know, I don't think many men are going to make a movie uh, about abortion, for example, except for Judd Apatow, who makes it into a, a not very funny comedy. Um, you know, I want to see a diversity of stories. And we're so we're also, you know, diversity, I think, often just gets uh, crudely kind of like becomes an abstraction. We don't know what that means. We're talking about people's lived experiences. Yeah. You know? We're yeah. talking about it. It's like I want to see a diversity of human experiences of every color and every culture. I don't want to just see some white dude like going through his things. I love, you know, I'm married to a white dude. It's like, <laughs> I love lots of those movies, but I want, I want real diversity, you know? Well, you know, in that respect, the woman King is a fascinating picture because we suddenly have women taking on the roles that normally you would have gone to see men play and portray, you know, the warriors, the, 
uh, right? Yes, no, and that was really, I mean, I've been a fan of Gina Prince-Bythewood uh, for a very, very long time, and it was just very exciting that she was, she's the director, that she was, you know, she, I interviewed her about eight years ago, and she showed up to the interview wearing a Wonder Woman t-shirt, you know? I mean, she is someone <laughs> who really likes big, wants a really big um tapestry. She wants a big picture to work in. She, you know, it's wonderful if you want to make a small movie about people talking intimately about their feelings. And that is really great. And there are men and women who do that really well. And she wanted to go big, you know, I mean, I, I would love to see her, you know, and she's been making bigger pictures and getting acclaim. And that movie was a hit. It didn't get, again, recognized by the Academy, and that's a complicated thing uh, for a lot of different reasons. But the movie was a hit, and she's, you know, she's proven herself again and again and again. And it's just very exciting to see her getting a chance to make the kind of movie that she clearly wants to make. Well, well, let me uh, take a, a moment. This is kind of a side note, but it does fit into the conversation. Um, another woman who had a stellar year and really was the outstanding star of the picture was Danielle Deadweiler playing uh, uh, Emmett Till's mother. Mm -hmm. she, Danielle is out of Atlanta, and all of us who know Atlanta theater have known Danielle for a very long time, so we've watched her journey in a very particular way. And uh, her performance in that was spectacular. And there are those people who think she should have been nominated for an Oscar for that performance. I am, I am one of those people who thinks. I think, you know, no, uh, you know, the other, the, the nominees are all fine, but she's doing heroic work and also incredibly subtle work. And the yeah. Academy as a body really likes very big, noisy kind of, big actorly performances, you know, and she's doing something that I think is really, really smart for the movie. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with the director, uh, who I think is just a spectacular director of, of, of performers. Um, but she's, you know, that is a really another woman. Yeah. Another woman. Uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to massacre her name, so I'd rather not, but she, she's just a really, really talented. And I just think, you know, a lot of people, uh, from what I understood, were reluctant, and I understand why, to see the movie. You know, it's an extremely painful, difficult movie. And I went in there with great, great apprehension. And I was really, really pleased um, at, you know, it is really difficult and you will cry and you will be upset. But it is a movie that has a lot of grace and a lot of sensitivity. And it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful performance and it really holds the movie. Um just while we're talking about women uh, in pictures, there are a couple of other pictures on your list of best movies of the year, top 10. And you say in your essay about that, it, this is not, I, I had a hard time with 10. Uh, Kimmy, Steven Soderbergh, Zoe Kravitz is virtually the only person in that entire picture. She's so great. She's yeah. great. It's a great performance. And it's such a bummer that she hasn't been more widely recognized. She's absolutely terrific. Well, but but it, she is, <clears throat> it's a picture where the woman dominates the screen in throughout the entire picture. The eternal daughter is another one in the sense that Tilda Swinton, we see two women. <laughs> that, that, that so I, your point about how women have emer are emerging is 
very exciting to think about right now. That I'm glad. I mean, I'm going to say, you know, when I do a top 10, I actually don't pay attention to, you know, I, I don't do any counting. I'm not like, I'm not counting to see if I have, a, you know, equal representation. This uh, in terms of gender, and I'm not looking, I'm just picking my favorite top 10 movies. And this was absolutely, I promise you, I swear, I'm crossing my heart. Uh, for the first, I had five, five of the movies, half of my movies were directed by women or one of them was co-directed. So that was actually very thrilling. So yet another data point to my larger thesis. I got to get to a final break of the show, um, but a lot more that I want to talk with uh, Manola Dargis about will continue after these messages. Manola Dargis, uh, the co-chief film critic for the New York Times, is with me. It's somebody whose work I've really loved reading for a very long time. Manola, I want to talk for a few minutes if we can, and you'll help me if I don't pronounce his last name correctly. Jafar Panahi. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's as far as I know. That's how you spell it. Uh, how you pronounce it? Yes. He's another example. Look there. There are not a lot of people out there who are rushing off to watch his pictures. I know that. But here's an Iranian filmmaker who for decades has been making independent small pictures critical of the Iranian government, doing it in many ways in secret, having to smuggle some of his movies out of the country. Um, And he's just been in prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, because he is an opponent of the regime, and he was released, I think, three days ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, talk about politics. He is a remarkable example of what film can mean in the political discourse. I mean, if you wanted to just see that there, you know, I think one of the things that's really important about we have this idea of a country, right? And but then there are the people who live in the country and to get a really greater sense of what life is like and the voices inside that country i think that cinema is a really good place to start you know whether you're looking at the united states or iran or china or japan or wherever that you can actually see something and panahi is an extraordinary filmmaker and i would just suggest you know Look him up on Wikipedia and look at his titles and start watching because you will find just remarkable work. One of the things that I've always really liked about him, he's always, um, in many of the movies, he's had women characters, really kind of astonishing, really great women characters. And it's been very organic to his work. Um, and, uh, I just, I really greatly admire him. And, you know, this is someone who's made movies, uh, well, he's been in under house arrest. Um, his last movie, no bears is just a wonderful, wonderful movie. Um, and in that he's basically paying, playing a version of himself. And you see someone who is anguished, uh, about the very same things that you will read about in, you know, a newspaper, but this is very personalized. And you're, you're watching someone who is Iranian, who is, who is protesting in his way through art against, uh, the regime. I think that it really will complicate your ideas about, uh, a country that can just be, you know, kind of, uh, seem very monolithic if you're just, yeah. you know, reading the newspaper, for example. 
Well, I haven't been able to see no bears here yet, and I'm sorry about. You know, that's one of the problems we've lost. We're losing our independent cinemas in uh, yeah. and and it's and it's one of the reasons that you know we could have the debate forever about what large screen movie theaters and streaming, but like, let's face it streaming gives you the opportunity to see an awful lot of pictures you might not otherwise get to see so the reason i mentioned that so i couldn't see no bearers but as i thought about doing this conversation with you i decided to look at another one of his pictures mm -hmm. and so i watched the mirror mm -hmm. which is an amazing movie it's about a little girl i think she's seven six seven years old and um she her mother is late to pick her up from school and so she decides to get home on her own but she has no idea where she lives and we see what's beautiful about this movie aside from the fact that this little girl is fierce and stubborn and has an independence that's really wonderful to watch is it's what you just said we see her wandering through the streets of tehran and we get a real sense of what tehran must have been like but the other thing that happens, this movie was made in, I think, 97. The other thing that happens is that three quarters of the way into the picture, it, the girl breaks frame completely. She mm -hmm. says, I don't want to be in this movie anymore. <laughs> and she literally jumps off the bus where the scenes is playing out. And uh, Panahi decides to follow the girl as she makes her way home the movie suddenly becomes a, about a real experience and it's really extraordinary it is it is there's another movie of his that i would just like to just suggest uh, it's a 2006 movie called offside and it's about a bunch of girls who want to watch a world cup match but they can't get in the stadium and it's about what happens and it's it's just very i feel like i've you know I feel like the Iranian movies that I've seen and Panahi's included have been really important in terms of, again, complicating my kind of, you know, uh, initial idea of, for instance, you know, uh, Iranian women. You know, it's complicated in a way that kind of then sent me to, to reading uh, deeper about Iranian women um, and questions of the veil, for example. And I just think like all of that is really, really important. But you can learn a lot through people who are making movies in the streets with yeah. you know, oftentimes with non-professionals. It's really exactly. exciting. It's uh, by the way, I thought about that, uh, about offsides watching uh, the mirror because a, a theme throughout the entire picture is we hear radio broadcasts of the Iranian soccer team playing against the Koreans mm -hmm. and that, that we hear it throughout the entire movie in various places. <laughs> and offsides is fascinating because women aren't allowed to watch soccer in stadiums so they have to go in in disguise uh and once again we learn about iranian culture in a completely different way uh, yeah. by the way manola here's what occurs to me it's purely speculative but that picture of the mirror was 1996 97 so by now that little girl is in her 20s mm. she was so fiercely independent in that movie so stubborn it would not be hard to imagine her as one of the women in the streets right now protesting against the re regime suppression of women. I know that your speculation. Yes. Killing <laughs> thing to think about. Yeah, I mean, I just, you know, again, the arc of of watching Panahi's movies, it just will kind of 
it will be eye-opening, I think, to people. It will really provide a kind of uh, import. It's very humanizing and really important to see this work. Um, I'm glad you brought it up. Thank you. I, I, I really think people should watch it. Um, can we talk about some other pictures while we have a few more minutes? Sure, absolutely. What would you like to talk about? <laughs> well, number one, I, you make the point, and boy, you're, I think you're so right, um, but there are a lot of us who feel the same way. Jordan Peele has become one of the most important filmmakers of our time, right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, starting with Get Out, um, but but now, no. Um, what is it about Jordan Peele, do you think, uh, that... What is it about his sensibility? What is it about the way he thinks? What is it about what he brings to his pictures that makes him so important? Well, I think, you know, coming out of the gate with Get Out was just kind of an astonishing introduction. I mean, you know, and in a way, I mean, that movie is by someone who is a natural filmmaker. That sounds like a very strange thing to say, but they're, they're just filmmakers who I feel like they... They, they're just right from the very, Paul Thomas Anderson, another filmmaker yeah. who I just feel like right away, you know, I would say Catherine Bigelow is another one, just right away there, they've got all the talent and, you know, Jordan Peele, like everything works in that movie. It didn't get out. I mean, it is just such a perfect, you know, it is so perfectly constructed and so smart He's a, you know, if anyone watched his variety shows or watched, you know, familiar with him, you knew that he was a great movie fan. I mean, just some of the funniest Keen, you know, Peel and, is it Keen Peel or Peel and Keen uh, stuff was just yeah, about yeah. movies, right? Um, and, but I was just floored by just how incredibly confident and, and polished that entire film was, you know? Yeah. So I was... I was really taken aback. Um, you know, Us is his next movie, and that is a a kind of it's it's not as tight a movie. I started to feel with with both Us and Nope that he has basically built up so many ideas about what he wants to say that I think he sometimes needs to winnow them a little bit. He needs you know, to so, edit. <laughs> yeah, you know, but that's true of a lot of, I mean, yeah. one of the better things about the uh, classical Hollywood uh, system was that they had, they did, sometimes good producers can help you kind of cut down and figure out what you need. Just like a, like a, anyone who's editing today will figure out how to cut things down. You know, I mean, it's just, you learn how to, how to tighten it up. Um, I mean, as a writer, I always appreciate good editing. Um, but I think that Nope uh, is just, I, I really liked us a lot. I like Nope even more. I think it's a spectacular movie. And I think, you know, he is very influenced by, you know, classic art film as well. Like, I think you, we just going in, we're thinking, oh, these are, this is going, this is a big movie from Universal um, and I'm going to be watching a big Hollywood movie, but it's much more complicated. And again, I think it's an issue of habit. If you were only watching a certain kind of movie that has certain kind of beats, then Jordan Peele is going to maybe weird you out because you're like, I'm not really sure what's going on here. There are these moments of ambiguity that are confusing and he's not going to explain it necessarily. He's going to leave it open, you know, and that to me is where he's really coming at the kind of um, the juncture of uh, classical Hollywood cinema and art film. And he yeah. both are in there. And oh, I think- Go ahead. And that I think it complicates things in a way that people want. 
And again, it's not their fault, but if you're only seeing movies that are kind of spoon feeding you, then you're going to expect to have be spoon fed. And Jordan Peele is not going to do that. In fact, his his interview, uh, I can't remember who interviewed him for the New York Times, but uh, basically he answered no questions about what the movie meant. Every answer was, well, you'll just have to decide for yourself what (laughs) Right. Absolutely. And I think, you know, there's kind of uh, ambiguity that's not interesting. And then there's interesting ambiguity. And I think with him, the work is very interesting. I, you know, that is one of the movies that I thought about the most last year after seeing it and was really, and in a good way, you know, and I, I, I would always hope that people, if you don't understand the movie, that's okay. Don't be mad at the movie see the movie as a, you know, you don't get necessarily mad at a book because it's complicated, you know, give Um, it, give it some space. We are virtually out of time, but I have to ask you one last question. (laughs) Yes. Um, Most people are not aware that every 10 years, uh, Sight and Sound uh, asks, polls film critics around the world to come up with a list of the most important, the best movies ever. Um, And you've been part of that. Um, and and this year, that was the 10th year, and as you well know, and boy, talk about not wanting to butcher a title. I'm only going to say the start of it because I don't have French. Jean <laughs> Dielman, you know, can you tell me the rest of it? Or... Is it Jean, Jean Dielman, it's 23 Commerce Key, uh, 1080 Brussels, and it's her actual, it's a woman and her address. A three hour and 23 minute picture. Talk about women again that focuses almost exclusively on a a woman in her small flat in France and her day-to-day life. Some things happen. Was that your top movie? It's one of my top movies. It's actually, it takes place in, uh, it's uh, Brussels. Oh, it's Brussels. Uh, Yes, uh, uh, Ackerman uh, was was actually um, uh, Belgian. Um, And it's played by the great um, Delphine Sarrigue, plays Jean Dielman. And, uh, you know, uh, film goers of a certain age will know her from movies like uh, Last Year in Mary and Bad. Um, And you're watching a woman, she's a widow, she has a son, and you're watching her in her everyday life. And the movie uh, really tests your ability to handle kind of quotidian, um, you know, you see her actually make a meatloaf, which apparently, you know, in real time. (laughs) And the movie insists on you watching her and really paying attention. I love it. I've seen it many it times. hypnotic after a It's while. absolutely hypnotic. But, you know, some movies really require you to reset your, your rhythms. You know, I often find when I go to the Cannes Film Festival, I have to like spend a day just calming down because I'm used to having watched a lot of American movies, having a certain pacing. You just need to reset to watch a movie like this. Manola, I am so completely out of time, but I have to ask you one last question. What was your number one movie in this this year's poll? Oh, with the sight and sound, it's the same one every year. It, uh, the, every time I've done it, I've done this three times. It's uh, Balthazar by uh, a French filmmaker, uh, Bresson. I have a thing for donkeys. What can I it's say? It's EO, and so that's why Well, EO, EO was on my top my yeah. top 10, but my sight and sound yes. was Balthazar. So I as did. I say, I like the donkey. What can I say? <laughs> Manola Dargis, we are completely out of time. I really enjoyed the opportunity to talk to you. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. It was delightful. Um, all right. We're going to give you all a weekend off. Be back with another edition of Political Rewind on Monday. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy, everybody. <laughs>